This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Rusland, today we have the returns of two of my uh, well, dearest friends, actually. She is an actor and a, a director and a producer and well, the head of Instant Cafe Theatre. She is Joe Kukathas. Hello, everyone. Nice to be back. Hello, Joe. And the other voice you heard there... Oh, spoiler, he, no, they know it's me. Yeah, no, they know. I'm going to swap you out for somebody at the last moment to, to make it uh, impactful. He is an actor, he's a director, and he's a writer as well. He is Na'a Murad. Hi, guys. Uh, thanks, Cam, for inviting me again. And our three topics this week will be, topic number one is alternative Christmases. And topic number two is the show must go on. And finally, uh, the city in books and films. So Christmas is here, Na'a, and um, you and I yes. as, as uh, <laughs> well... Dad in the war pagans, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Christmas time is here. So what, do you, what, what alternative Christmases? Yeah, um, well, you know, I believe that Christmas is probably the most adaptable religious holiday to the point that it's not even a religious holiday anymore. It's like, do what you like, basically, right? We've all heard about all the alternative um, Christmases from other parts of um, the Western world, Europe. I mean, you've got weird things like in some parts of Wales, they would put out the skull of, of a dead horse and dress it up. And what it symbolizes, I have no idea. I, I tried to do my research, but I just know it exists. In Iceland, you have to wear a new form of clothing, even if it's just a, a new pair of socks or a new pair of gloves. If not, you will be devoured by a giant evil black cat. Now, I don't know if that's proven scientifically, but you know, everybody does that. Um, yeah. Apparently, it's, a, it's just an excuse for everybody to get a new piece of clothing, basically, I think. In Norway, you hide your brooms because the witches apparently would take your brooms for rides, which can be a hassle, I think. You know? Um, <laughs> they can't find your broom. I know, exactly. I mean, like, like, like you know, with, with, with my leaking house, all the puddles, I mean, I don't take my mops you know, in Japan. Okay, let's, let's, let's concentrate on places where, you know, you don't have that pagan slash uh, Christianity tradition thing, but it's also um, Christmas, of course, uh, you can't avoid it in Asia, right? It's become a worldwide thing. And um, even in places like Japan, where the, the, the Christian community is tiny, 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 um, something interesting happened in the 70s where... Kentucky Fried Chicken, yes, Kentucky Fried Chicken, did this incredible Christmas promotion, which um, I don't know, I tried looking for the videos, but I couldn't find any because I guess it was 1972 and not, it wasn't recorded. But it, it was so effective that till today, if you don't really celebrate Christmas in Japan, which most people don't, it is the day for eating Kentucky Fried Chicken. They even have a <laughs> wish, which is called Karismasu Niwa Kentucky. Which, <laughs> Christmas with Kentucky or something like that. So even if you don't do anything, you don't give gifts, you're not Christian, none of that stuff. You know, the thing to do on Christmas is just to get together with friends and family and just pig out on Kentucky Fried Chicken. So it's incredibly bizarre how, how adaptive Christmas is. And is it because Colonel Sanders looks a lot like Father's Christmas? Possibly, possibly. You know, like, yeah, that, that's true. I mean, apparently in Korea, he looks exactly like, uh, Santa Claus looks exactly like Santa Claus except for he wears those high Korean hats, you know, the ones that look like stovepipe hats. Yeah, that, that's the only, only difference. But I was just talking about Malaysia, but personally and how things are here, I mean, like, like apparently Malaysia and Bali are the only two places where people just go crazy about fireworks on Christmas, which is, which is like, we, we, just, we know, we, we are crazy about fireworks anyway. 
yeah. right? To the point where, you know, soon people will have their circumcision and they will, you know, <laughs> you know, you know it's like, hey. Uh, yeah, but I think the most Malaysian type of Christmas is probably a phenomenon I've noticed for the past 10 years or so, where in the days leading up to Christmas, which is, which is now, people just go to malls and just hang around the decorations and just take pictures. And it becomes this little thing where you just absorb that, the aesthetics of Christmas, but nothing else. Nobody really celebrates, but it becomes a thing. So I was just wondering if you guys, in none of us are traditionally Christian or Western or any of that, or, or pagan. I mean, there's, there's a bit of pagan in all of us, I think. But, but um, how have you celebrated Christmas with your, your family or with your friends over the years? I mean, my, my family has always uh, celebrated Christmas, and we are all, you know, Rather like you, but not, you know, that kind of thing. But it's become a thing where there's no presents, generally no alcohol, and even the food is wrong. <laughs> the most Western we get is the family um, spaghetti, which is a, a very, very Malaysian, very Asian spaghetti with the chili and, you know, like slightly manis, slightly sweet. Only in recent times, because my niece has learned to make mince pies, has there been this phenomenon of mince pies. You're like, ooh, mince pies, what are those? Mm, and, you know, mm. occasionally somebody would bring crackers or something. But generally, there's no Christmas tree, nothing. It's just this excuse to just be together as a family and just pig out. And, um, but there is a Christmas Day thing. It is a Christmas Day thing. Sometimes it's, it's usually dinner, mm. Christmas Eve, dinner. Sometimes it's on Christmas Day. It just depends on how, how busy people are. Or, or what people are doing otherwise. So, so how about you guys? Yeah, because Joe, your family is now four corners of the planet. <laughs> what Christmases have you had? When the family was more intact, for some reason, Christmas was always a very special occasion. I think when we were living in other countries, so like when we were living in Australia or Hong Kong, I guess it was because it was the end of the year, uh, you weren't at school, you could have a long time leading up to it. And of course, um, your father was on, and my dad would be on holiday and he'd have that end of the year feeling. And also my dad is a great present buyer um, and he loved, he loved wrapping things. He liked, he liked teasing his children. So he would buy presents, tiny presents and put them in layers and layers and layers of paper and you'd have to unwrap box after box after box after box. And so Christmas was always like full on, pretty full on. I mean, we, had, we, always, we would have a tree, we would have, roast something or other, lamb or chicken. I think we were never, you know, a turkey family. But, and oh, very yeah. hard to get a turkey in Asia. Yeah. yeah, and even when you did eventually try turkey, we, like, we decided it was not for us. You know, leave it for the pilgrims, we felt. But of course, after my parents passed away and the family sort of more split up, we don't have that same thing. Now I tend to go to friends' houses or I go to some of my other relatives' houses and who don't celebrate Christmas in the same way. And then, you know, I think last Christmas I was at my... Uh, vegetarian Indian food for Christmas Day. I, I think with Christmas, you can't help but also associate it with the end of the year. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that if it was in the middle of the year or just some random kind of bit of third way through, it really wouldn't have the same mm. universal uh, appeal. It's, mm. uh, it's, it's coming to the end of something, possibility of the beginning of something. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. but my, my mother's British and I grew up in England. So you can't, obviously, you know, Christmas is a big deal. But one year when I was growing up there, just one year it snowed mm. at Christmas. And that'll live long. But also, like, it, it was so Christmassy, but at the same time, how comes snow? It, even then, it's like, why snow? Why, would you, why is snow connected to Christmas? It, you know, 33 BC Palestine is like when, <laughs> you know, like, like uh, oh, it's, it's a snowing. miracle, though. <laughs> it's a miracle. Yeah. Uh, 
So apparently Santa Claus became a big thing in America and uh, because of the Coca-Cola company. Oh, and the Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola company sort of dressed him in that sort of red and white in order to make him people think about Coca-Cola colors. And that's why he became such a, um, such a big figure. I mean, of course, he'd come from this figure from Europe, Chris Kringle and all the rest of it. But St. Nicholas, yeah. St. Nicholas. Meet yeah. presents for kids, apparently. So, so hang on. So that whole red-white association with Christmas is because of Coca-Cola? Apparently. Apparently, I've heard that too. Yeah, well, and, and feel, then it, everybody's just jumping it. Yeah. I feel so duped by consumer, <laughs> it's, and I had no control over it. And it's just like I see red and white, and I think, or oh, I think KFC, and I think Christmas. Yeah. Oh my god! It's In Japan, <laughs> Colonel Sanders beat out um, Santa Claus. Yeah. Of course, the birth of Christ isn't even on that date, right? That date was chosen because it was. I mean, it was on the sixth of December, more or less. But you know. It, it was winter to, solstice and stuff. Yes, but it was to in order in order to uh, get the pagans uh, worshiping um, using their own pagan festive festival. Mm. Which was, right? Such so, because, because, you know, so that you won't have too many public holidays. So it's very important <laughs> yes. not to have people celebrating every couple of weeks. And, and the Roman authorities were like, "We can't give Christians holidays. Come on!" But when they find the Turin <laughs> shroud, <laughs> apparently <laughs> on the Turin shroud is also the mark of um, Christ's my card. So we will finally know his, his actual birthday. Uh, it's getting too sacrilegious. We're going to have to move on. <laughs> my card information on the my card. Nah. That's enough. So, um, well, that's an alternative Christmas is there. And so we move on, though, topic number two, which is um, the show must go on. Now, the three of us happen to be from kind of showbiz, entertainment, theatrical backgrounds. And uh, the term the show must go on is obviously associated with kind of showbiz. But I think it's true. Well, no, I don't think it. I know it's true for all walks of life. Whatever it is you do, you're going to find yourself in a situation where where a personal or national calamity happens and you think, how can I possibly go on? I can't just do this work. It makes no sense. Oh, but the show must go on. Like the culture. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, I'm sure many listeners know now, and I mentioned it last week, um, a friend of mine and the host of BFM's football show uh, died very recently. Anyway, it was very shocking. But the thing is, whenever I did the football show with Ross Yusuf, you know, invariably something's going to happen in life. And I remember when MH370 disappeared and then we were going to go on air and do a show about football. And I'm thinking... How can I possibly talk about football at this time? But I kind of felt after a while, like, you know, life has its calamities, but something like football just goes on. And I think that maybe it's, it's okay to just hang on to those kind of uh, certainties, you know what I mean? Um, I don't know if I'm right in that. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's bad well, behavior, but what, what do you think? During, do you during World War II, people went to see movies as often as they could still. I suppose people needed their escape. Uh, movies like Wizard of Oz, for example, made billions of dollars entertaining people who were worried about their sons, you know, fighting thousands of miles away and all that. I think, I think um, entertainment, at least what we do, does go on, you know. Um, I believe the dinosaurs still, you know, had little plays and stuff like that, <laughs> even after the meteor. <laughs> <laughs> 
real poetry readings, you know. Where is the sun? Oh, sun, where art thou? You know? It, yeah. It just Brave little dinosaurs. <laughs> I think living things, I mean, we just need to have our escape, uh, no matter how bad things are going. I, I think yeah. it's, it's like how people are feeling right now. I mean, with, with the floods happening. And, I mean, some friends have said, oh, you know, you feel a bit guilty about getting together and celebrating Christmas with, with each other because there's so many people who don't even have enough food. There are people who are in distress, who are suffering. And so you feel, oh gosh, can we, shouldn't we be out there doing things to help people? And the fact is Christmas must go on. And you, of course, you also help people and you do what you can uh, for those who need it. Um, but I think that, it's true that sometimes we think when, there's, when, we, when, we, when we face a calamity, whether, as you said, can national or personal, we think things must stop. You know, it's like that famous poem, uh, Stop All the Clocks, you know, um, which Auden wrote about the death of his friend. Um, and when you, the person dies, he says, well, stop the clocks. That's, surely that's what you need to do. But the fact is, the clocks don't stop. Things must go on. The show does go on, even though sometimes we don't want it to, especially after it's the death of a friend, right? You don't want the clocks to go on. It, it feels wrong, almost. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I felt it very strongly because the three of us also have, have, have worked, do work in, in uh, comedy. Mm. And, you know, when something happens, national or personal, that's bad, it is it's so impossibly hard to turn your head to create something funny that's completely unrelated and I mean that is a very much a showbiz thing. It's not you know if you're a quantity surveyor, you're not you know you're not being forced to go out there and you know, do funny quantity survey in a bad time. But um, you know it is, I mean I'm wondering you too. Have you ever found yourselves in in theatrical type situations where you know you've been really confronted with? Yeah, I mean Joe, you must have. Well, I remember we were doing uh, Caught in the Middle. I think I believe we were doing you know. Wasn't caught in the middle. I can't remember what play it was now when Operation Lalang happened. And I remember seeing standing outside the theater at DBKL and thinking, how's this possible? You kind of don't want to go on, uh, but you, at the same time, you have to go on. I remember Instant Cafe had a show in a, some hotel somewhere, and we were discussing the program, uh, you know, and just working out the logistics of things. Maybe a couple of hours before we were supposed to go on stage, when we found out about Highland Towers. And, yeah. and you think, well, I don't want to go on and do comedy. Right? Yeah. Um, but this was the days before mobile te phone technology. Um, I can't remember how we found out. Maybe it was very early mobile phone technology, but it wasn't something which, you know, every, every laboratory, most people would have, wouldn't have known about it. And the most awful thing was that we were going to be doing a performance to a ballroom full of um, developers. Oh, right. And one of the sketches was our development sketch which was essentially, you know, making fun of people who do overdevelopment and develop things in a way which is, which is unsafe and scary. But of course, we're doing comedy out of it. And we're like, mm -hmm. well, we're not going to do that sketch tonight. So we took it out of our lineup. Mm. Well, well, Joe. Um, I think we just kept a bit too close. Yeah. I, I had an incredibly personal thing because um, when my father was in hospital, and there was very, very little doubt. He was in, in Glen Eagles. So there was very little doubt that he, that he was at the end of his days. Right? There was nothing the doctors could do. I got a job offer, and I needed the money. I had to do a job. And I realized that the entire thing was being shot in location around Jalan Wickham, Ampang, which is literally five minutes away from the hospital. Mm. So they needed me desperately because their directors had to go and leave. So I need to finish up the, 
the series. It was a children's TV series. And I, um, I said, well, on, on the condition that I need a good assistant director who, who knows exactly what's going on. And if I get a call from my family or from the hospital that I need to be there at the hospital, that you're going to have to do without me. And they were so desperate to, to do that, that they, um, uh, they agreed. They agreed. I said, it's only five minutes away, you know, but, but if, you, if you were to lose me for the entire the rest of the evening, I'm afraid, you know, you're going to have to deal with that. And um, they agreed. And, and it was probably the most difficult shoot of my life, partly because there were a lot of problems on the shoot, which I solved quickly. But um, that entire feeling that here I'm, I am doing this, this incredibly fun and, and lighthearted children's semi-magical, you know, kind of thing. A bunch of lovely kids. And at the same time, I myself was feeling like a, like, like, like a, like a child who was about to lose his father. And it, uh, yeah, it, it, I'm sure if I was to look back at the episodes I directed, it must have been pretty bad. It must have been pretty <laughs> grim. I'm like, what are you kids laughing about? <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't even remember that time. It just went by like this. Uh, just um, a bunch but, of but, bunch of frightened kids cowering in a corner. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Okay, shall we do it again? Yes, do it again. Action. But 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 um, happy ending to the tale. Um, my father hung on, and um, I had. Uh, after the shoot was over, I had we had over a week to be with him, you know, every day. So, so that's the. But yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly it has to go on. I mean, sometimes your your life does not allow you to relinquish all responsibility. Uh, you have to relinquish some responsibility for for you know what's going on in your own life and to, to just yeah. do the job. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's absolutely it's absolutely true for all walks of life, though. It's yeah, definitely. It's, yeah. it's by no means a showbiz adage. I mean, I, I remember Patrick Chiu telling me that, um, or I mean, I knew that Patrick was on stage doing, doing a performance in KL when he received news that his mother had passed away. Sure. And he had to get on stage that night and do the performance. And then he drove to Ipoh after that. And then he had to come back the next day, I think, in order to continue. So he was kind of going back and forth. Wow. Um, wow. Thank goodness. Very difficult. Yeah. And for myself as well, I was in, I was in a production. when I mean, my mother had been ill for some months and I was in a production, and then she took a turn for the worse. And I, of course, the director allowed me to stop coming to rehearsals for a bit. But, you know, a week after her funeral, it was, we need to come back to rehearsal. And I was like, of course, I thought to myself, I, really, I, don't, I don't want to. I really don't want to do this. I don't want to do this play. I don't want to do theatre ever again. But, you know, the show must go on. So I had to go back to rehearsal. And in fact, I ended up wearing one of my mother's you know, house coats, as they're called, house dresses, for the character I was playing, because I was playing this um, elderly lady in the, in the play, um, and yeah, connecting a little bit that way. So you yeah. find ways, actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, on on that uh, sad note, we must stop the clocks and take a break for a moment. Uh, but we will be back with um, movies with about cities here on a bit of culture BFM eighty nine point nine. And we're back with uh, Joe Kukutas, Na'am Murad, and myself, Cam Ressler. And now topic number three, cities in books and films. Joe. Yeah, I wanted to talk about this today because I, I recently uh, went to see Prevet Sapu, which is a new film starring um, Amarul Effendi. And I'm so sorry, I, I can't remember the name of the director. It's terrible. I should, um, 
I should know this. It's a Malaysian, it's a Malaysian film. It's a Malaysian yeah. film, Hail Driver, it is in, in translation. And I was really struck by two things. One, I was struck by what a fantastic actor Amaro Hendi is. Well, secondly, I was struck by the fact that here was a film which uh, was a film about KL, you know, actually more than anything else. It's, it's not a film which has a, a plot, uh, much on much of a plot. It's not about the plot of the film, but it's, um, it's a film that was made over quite a number of years. It was actually the filmmakers first started filming in 2017. And so, because when I was watching, I was thinking, hey, that's, that's the 2018 elections. That's that crazy tale with, with that going on. Then I found out uh, later that he, um, he had stopped making the film because he ran out of money. And then, of course, started making the film again. And then the pandemic hit, so he had to stop. And he's only been able to finish up the film recently. It's just been released. But I was struck at the portrayal of KL. You know, and I, I, I love films and books which get, give me a sense of place, right? And I, was, and I was thinking, I don't think I've seen that many films and read that many books in Malaysia that give me a sense of place of KL, you know, or place or sense of place of even other places in the peninsula. You get a sense of things, you get a sense of even of um, people, but you don't always get a sense of place. And I, and I think the way he used his, his camera to capture skylines and, and things from the ground up, seeing KL, I think, through the eyes of this character that Amaro plays, and the character is colorblind, so the film is in black and white. I mean, of course, it's, somebody who's colorblind doesn't see in such wonderful black and white, but the cinematography is in yeah. black and white. And it made me think also about this uh, TV series I watched last last year, earlier this year, called uh, Pretend It's with uh, Fran Lebowitz and so, yeah, uh, Martin but... Scorsese, where Martin Scorsese is talking to her, and uh, or rather, he's listening to her talking. He's laughing a lot as she's talking. His main role is to laugh as she speaks yeah. about the city. And again, it's, just, it's really quite wonderful. I think we know so much about other cities in the world because of art, because of books, because of films. And, I, and I'm, I feel we don't have so much of that going on here in Malaysia. So I thought it would be quite nice to talk about how we've got to know other places through books and film. Yeah, you're right. I mean, like um, the last thing I saw locally that, got a feeling of, of, of the place up to a point was uh, Yu Hang's Rain Dogs. Have you guys seen that? Oh, yeah. Yes. I, I mean, it wasn't that emphasized, but there were moments where you actually felt uh, a kind of connection or, or, or at least you felt that a connection was being, uh, you've been plugged in into this place and just, just by images, just by what was going on. And there was this incredible scene. I think it was Rain Dogs or one of his other movies where um, they were at the crematorium and things were happening at the crematorium. And the whole, this, this humongous crematory, I can't remember what it's called, I've been there. Um, it is like this strange necropolis anyway, so, so it doesn't really feel like it's part of any city, but it's its own place. But as they were there, you could hear the azan going on from a nearby masjid. And when, when, when I think um, it was explained, I mean, I may have asked somebody involved in the production, they said, no, that actually happened while they were shooting. Mm. It's just the idea of, of, the, of the juxtaposition of all that. And... and um, the point uh, I'm trying to make, I suppose, there hasn't been anything like this since, since the old days. I remember uh, Datuk Lat saying to me, uh, we were having a discussion during a comics convention, as, as one does, as I'm, you know. <laughs> um, and being a legend that he is, he was invited. And, and we had this uh, non-official conversation, a bunch of us, about how people spoke, how, how Malay, what did conversational Malay sound like 20 years ago? 50 years ago, 150 years ago, whatever, right? 
And how did people speak in KL? Or, or, or was Piramli's Malay more like the Singaporean blah, blah? And Datuk Lat, since he's been around, he said that if you want to know how people spoke in KL, you watch the Mat Sentul films. And also Mat Sentul films were shot in KL. And I remember vaguely that there, there, there was uh, Mat Sentul films did in its, in, in its silliness, did actually root itself very much into KL. What the place was like, um, um, where people went to eat or, you know, like dance or, or where the nightclubs were. You, you really got the feel of KL, even within that, that very um, comedic and almost like a gonzo humor type of, type of um, universe that they were living in. So, yeah, it hasn't been something that, that I've seen a lot in Malaysian film. Books, I haven't read a, a lot of locally written stuff um, I mean, I, years, so I think I see I, it I, in um, in uh, in in other area. I mean, other places. I mean, meaning that in let's for example, um, Den Said's Bonohan, you get a sense of Trunganu very beautifully. But I, you know, in 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 the mm. landscape, in, in the in the cinematography. But I was I was kind of interested in in, in cities. You know, like what, yeah. what films well, and books give us a sense of city. I would just say that me and Naa should know as filmmakers that. Uh, shooting in a city is very difficult. It's, yeah. it's kind of like the last place you want to shoot, right. what with permits and especially the noise. So if you're doing live sound, uh, just that sound of traffic. Um, and, and in KL, in Malaysia in particular, it's particularly hard because of these motorbikes. So you don't get, you don't get a drone in yeah. the background. You get individual motorbikes. So, you, so cutting between takes and everything is very hard. Because like, so, yeah. But I, I would say that I've, I've watched a couple of Chinese language Malaysian films, uh, which have been very good. There was one about two brothers and, oh, God, I wish I could remember it, shot in KL. And that really had a sense of, of not just of KL, but of um, a kind of a Pudu, Imbi kind of area. And of course, you know, Chinese in Malaysia, Chinese, it's uh, urban society, historically. Yeah. Was it, was it Flowers in the Pocket? Yeah. Uh, that, was about, that was about, you know, like the more not say industrial, more like semi-suburban, but, you know, like more in the city, but kind of like a, like a residential kind of thing. I can't quite remember, but I remember that having, having that, that, that feel, that, that feel of like everything was happening um, in places which you just walk by. You never mm. really, mm. you know, you, it's not the KL that, that you, you scrutinize. It's not, it's not Tulling Street or this, that or the other. It's that bicycle shop around the corner that, you know, you just clock casually as you walk by. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think I've come across it actually in Chinese uh, language Malaysian films more than Bahasa films. But having said the thing about sound, right, Cam, you know how Hong Kong is, is, is an even noisier city than, than, than KL, and they've always shot their stuff. I mean, uh, I grew up on loving Hong Kong films in the 80s and all that, and I was quite amazed that they, they did everything, you know, um, they dubbed everything. They did everything without sound. Um, and they, they were pretty good at it. And you, you still you, had that feeling that, 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 that you know, um, some of it sounded as though it was live sound. But then I saw this um, TV series set in, a, in um, their version of the, the old Pakiling flats. You know, those flats, high rise and like thousands of people living in, 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 you know, borderline poverty, working class kind of thing. And they decided to shoot that with live sound. And even though it was distracting at first, you realize that it added a sense of realism. There was always the sound of kids playing, doors slamming, yeah. the neighbor's dog barking, the traffic roar, all in, in the midst of, of a drama, of a story. And it became so much part of the, the landscape of, of the film that it became quite magical. 
But of course, there's there's a lot of technical um, things to, to to consider when you're doing that. You've got to, hmm. to even it out. But 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 yeah yeah maybe we could do that in KL. I don't know. Yeah, I feel, no, of course you can. You just think about films like City of God, right? The sense of how you, you get to know a place, right, through that that mm. that or um, I, I haven't seen the 2015 film by Kurosami Taxi, but I, I was thinking when I was watching uh, Prebet Sapu, I thought, well, they must have been, he must have been influenced by this film as well, because in that film too, it's uh, the, the convention is, it's this, it's this guy who is a filmmaker, but he's pretending to be a taxi driver and documenting people who are sitting in his taxi and hearing, hearing their story. So this has a similar kind of idea, except that this is not a documentary filmmaker who's driving a taxi, it's just a, a guy who's down on his luck. Who's mm. forced to, you know, to be a taxi, e hailing, e hailing service? Yeah. 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 Um, my, my, I mean, and not, uh, in a moment we'll ask you yours, but my uh, nomination for City movie would be Vim Vendors' uh, Wings of Desire. Um, right. Which is set in Berlin. And it's a Berlin that's, uh, that was kind of on the cusp of, I think it was still a divided Berlin then. Mm. And I'd never seen a city evoked in a, magical way like that whereby it was almost a portal the city as a portal into another dimension yeah. uh, and it's a dimension like jinn you know like we we live with them in a parallel world so when i did finally go to berlin i, I it just it felt like it must be a magical place it was so exciting to be in uh in the wings of desire city uh, so that would be I my i had exactly the same feeling when i went to, Ge- to germany again because we went to berlin because of wings of desire mm. That, mm. that made it this place that I wanted to see because yeah. it showed me all those things already and then I needed to see them. Yeah, yeah. Now, what's your city movie? Um, well, I'm, I'm going to say that I'm just going to go slightly out of the box because, you know, you can, there's a dozen films, great films about LA, great films about New York, great films about, you know, like that. I was going to say The Bicycle Thieves because it's not just the city, it's also that time. And, you know, like um, Vittorio De Sica's but I would like to go take, take it one step further about how somebody imagined an ancient city and managed to make you feel like you were really there because the minutia was there. was the blokes who did the BBC HBO Rome. I don't know if you guys remember that show. Because we've seen epic films about cities, whether it's an adaptation of Dickens. I mean, when it goes back to, to history, right? Where, where people have to kind of do their research and reimagine a lot of stuff. But this is ancient Rome. Right. And, and, and I thought the way they, the way they did it, the way they, they, they created a geography of where the main square was, where the docks were, where the unions were, how people lived, how the soldiers lived and, and what they ate and everything felt so authentic to me. You got lost in it. Uh, do you guys remember Rome? I, I, know, I know. I never saw it. Never saw it. Did you watch it, Joe? It's, no. it's not as good as, as Deadwood. It was about at the same time, but it, it, Wow, I, I was really impressed. I really felt I was sucked in into finally a, a depiction of of history of a historical city where you could actually smell the mud and mm. and you know you you it, it became almost tactile. You right. know? Um, and there was graffiti and people wonderful. It's a wonderful depiction of ancient Rome. Yeah, well, we must uh, move on. We're going to move on to um, the final part of the show, recommendations, where we recommend something that might be of interest. And uh, Nara is going to go first. Yes, I am. I'm, I'm speaking of Deadwood. That is, I have two recommendations. Deadwood is a simple one. If you love the TV show Deadwood, watch a Deadwood movie, which, which came out in 2019. 
because it's everything that you wanted as a fan. Um, some kind of closure, do not, though it also leaves things open. But my, my actual recommendation is a book. It's uh, written, a book written by Marlon James called Black Leopard, Red Wolf. And, you know, everybody's talked about how in fantasy literature, Tolkien took British mythology and Icelandic mythology, married it and created a new world, a new, a new face for fantasy based on what he knows, his region. I don't know if anybody's done it for Asia, but um, this uh, Jamaican gentleman called Marlon James has done it for Africa. Now, this book is an epic. I, I, it's like about 600 pages long. And it is set in an ancient Africa, which I don't know how much of it is based on actual uh, history and mythology, but a lot. And, and some of it borrows even from world mythology. But you, you are completely consumed by this fantasy world. And it's not, it's not, it's not um, cuddly like, like Tolkien or, or, or Narnia or any of those others. It is vicious. It's violent. It's, it's definitely for adults. The language is, would make a sailor blush, that kind of thing. But uh, I think it's a great book. I think it, it, it like um, Black Panther, which takes you to a completely African universe of storytelling, of um, fantasy and adventure storytelling, this does that for epic fantasy. It's, again, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, Marlon James. It's available here. And uh, everybody knows Neil, Neil Gaiman. Okay, I'll let Neil, Neil Gaiman speak for me. Um, he says that, written with language as powerful as Angela Carter's, is as deep and crafty as Gene Wolfe, bloodier than Robert E. Howard, and all Marlon James. It's something very new that feels old in the best way. I cannot wait for the next installment. That's Neil Gaiman who... Mm. Is, is, is legendary mm. in the field of fantasy. Mm. Okay. okay, that's my recommendation. Well, sounds good. Sounds good. And I another book um, called, uh, a few years ago called um, A Brief History of Seven Killings. That's the same man. Yeah, who, uh, about, man. about the killing, about Bo the murder of um, uh, Bob Marley. The attempts on Bob Marley's life. Yeah. 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 Oh, and, him. Oh, okay. yeah. it sounds interesting. All right, all right. Good, good. So it sounds like such a different kind of book. Yeah. yeah. Totally different, yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. So uh, my recommendation, it's going to be very quick because this is complete sad recommendation because it's exactly the same as last week, <laughs> <laughs> which is the Beatles documentary, Get Back. Exactly the same. It's just a, it's been a very difficult week for me <laughs> um, <clears throat> with uh, bereavement, but also the floods, which have actually affected me personally and uh, turned my world a bit upside down. You're living, you've had to move out of your house, Ken. I'm living out of my house, outside of my house. And But the thing is that uh, the Beatles have, I've, followed them with they followed with they come with me and it's different from when i watched it last week uh because i was in comfort and everything but actually it, it connected to what we were saying earlier it's it's a constant in my life to be able to reach for something that is continuously enriching and enjoyable mm. and just i don't know just also um comforting but but challenging at the same time. It's just, it's just a constant. So I've I've been I've watched it again. It's eight hours long. I've now watched that eight hours two times, uh, <laughs> and um, it's amazing. I um I actually bought a um subscription to Disney Plus. Okay, well then, completely legal, completely legal, and 
So this and, is the only way people can watch it if they have a subscription to Disney Plus. And unless they have some other illegal thing, and I condemn that. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's a Malaysian hot star. In Malaysia, it's called hot star, and it's uh, it's actually cheaper than uh, Disney That's Plus. Disney. So anyway, so that's my recommendation. Uh, it's a cheap, but I mean, I love it so. And so finally, Joe, what's yours? Well, since I've been talking about Prebet Sapu, I think I will recommend that you go watch it before it ends probably all too brief uh, run at our cinemas, uh, since uh, Malaysian films always get a very short shift uh, at our local cinema. So go watch it before it, it gets yanked off. Uh, when I went to watch it the other day, sadly, there were just like, I think, half a dozen people in the whole cinema. So if you're worried about social distancing, don't. <laughs> okay yes added benefit no one else will be there no it's um i'd like to go and watch it myself and um i've heard i've heard good things about it so mm. uh, well, I mean, that, I, it'll be interesting to, to chat with you guys about it later because i mean i don't want to say things which are spoilers and i think you know i didn't i didn't love every aspect of it but i i as i said for me i was really interested in this idea of the city yeah 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 Okay, well, that, that brings us uh, to the end of this week's show. And it only now remains for me to thank uh, special honoured guests, uh, Na'a Murad. A pleasure. Most welcome. And Joe Kukathas. Thank you so much, Cam and Na'a. Always a pleasure. And um, thank you. And please uh, join us next week on another exciting adventure here on A Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. <laughs>